You're tuned to Community Radio 3CR. Time is just after 7.30 and, of course, it's Sunday morning and time for the 3CR Gardening Show. My name's Pam Vardy. First up, of course, we have to say a very good morning to Stephen Ryan from Victor... Dixonia Rare Plants. Good morning, Pam, and good morning, everybody out there. Uh, I hope you're all tucked up and warm somewhere because it's not the most pleasant of mornings out there uh, in the gardening world today. So maybe it's a day to look for jobs to do... That Inside. don't require being outdoors. <laughs> I was thinking cleaning up the potting shed is a possibility. <clears throat> uh, you could be doing some hardwood cuttings in the kitchen. Uh, <laughs> you know, there, there are jobs and things that you could be doing. Uh, obviously, you could be reading bulb and seed catalogues. <laughs> uh, another good winter job. <laughs> so there's lots of things you could be doing that don't necessarily require you getting out there in the cold. And for those of you at reasonable altitude, I hope you're not completely snowed in because uh, that's certainly happening all over the state at the moment, snow all over the place, so uh, proper winter setting. So there you and go. given you, you were just suggesting people should be looking at seed catalogues, there oh, you go. there you go. What a segue. <laughs> yes. uh, here we have, just, actually I got my copy of it just uh, Friday. Okay. Uh, the Diggers Club have bought out their heirloom seeds for four seasons, sowing, growing, success for beginners and passionate gardeners of 2020, and yes, quite a good read really it could keep you entertained all day today it could. if it's a bit too uh, <laughs> wet and cold to go outdoors uh and perhaps get you thinking about what you should be doing for the spring vegetable garden absolutely uh, so so that's certainly and of course they do have flower seeds as well but um they're well known for their incredible range of edibles and uh, particularly heirlooms yes and you know you could be looking forward to putting in your pumpkin seed and your tomatoes plan and, your crop rotation yes. what you're going to be planting wet 
where? Oh, you, you could yeah, be so organised. Yeah, you could organized. Be, couldn't you? <laughs> yeah, so the diggers uh, manual's out. Those who are members, I'm assuming, will have got a copy of it. Uh, and if you're not a member of diggers, well, I guess you have to become one to get a copy. But um, uh, it would be a very useful resource with all sorts of interesting information. Absolutely. So there you go. So yep. the diggers' um, heirloom seeds and what have you. Yep. Always interesting. Yep. Okay, we've also got to say a very good morning to Virginia. Hey, good morning, Virginia. Good morning. This weather does mean I've got the cleanest pantry that I've had for at least a year. (laughs) (laughs) You know, there's another thought, except it's not completely uh, garden-oriented, although anything that's in the pantry that shouldn't be might end up in the compost. Quite a bit ended up in the compost. (laughs) Particularly old old seeds, you know, when you've got your herbs and your spices, and uh, that's been there. Much too long, mm. no flavour. Mm, Out exactly. it goes. So yeah. yes, quite a bit ended up in the compost. Yeah, Although I did spend a couple of good days in the garden this week. Okay. At the beginning of the week, I got a lot of work done. Mm. Cleaned up one bed completely. Mm-hmm. And done quite a lot of pruning nervously, mm-hmm. because you know, I mean, I, some things I absolutely haven't touched, like my brilliantasia. Yeah. Won't touch it. The top of it is quite yellow, and yeah. I think, well, it's going to protect. Miserable. Yeah. yeah. Yes, it can protect exactly. the rest. Yep. But I've pruned a lot of my salvias, which you know, a bit nervous, <laughs> particularly as it was snowing in Wesburn, which is as low as me. Oh. Yesterday, so right. you know. Yeah, I'm not so worried about the snow. It's if we get a really sharp, no, cold, the, frosty yes. snap after. Oh, and no, I'm not worried about the snow either. No, yeah. for me, the frost will roll off the hill. Yeah. So it has to be a very bad frost before for it, it settles. And yeah. all my heliotropes are fine, which are my... Oh, they'd be a they're good my, indicator. They're my sig- signature plant. If yeah. they, They're the first to go, yeah. the heliotropes. Yep, fair enough. Yeah. But I certainly haven't pruned them. No, no, <laughs> no either. Yeah, well, I actually got quite a bit of gardening done this week too. I got one and a half rock gardens weeded, which is a fiddly job because, yes. you know, any time, you've got to get every tiny weed out. And uh, uh, there were just this emergence of things starting to happen. So I got the, rock, the sunny rock garden, which I call my oxalarium. Uh, I've got that tidied up and half of my shady rock garden so I'm feeling quite chuffed oh gosh yes. the weediest part of the rock garden still to go but nonetheless I'm uh, I'm getting on top of it and it's starting to look good because of course I've got an opening coming up just before Christmas so I want to have the garden looking as spick and span as possible I've got one this Wednesday really and you're joking I'm not, no. <laughs> I know I'm mad I just sort of said yes it's a, it's a garden club and there's no chance I'll get to mow. Without mowing, it's not going to look that good. But I well, can't. you haven't got a man to mow a meadow? <laughs> <laughs> I, I've, I've got a girl to mow a meadow, yeah, but the yeah. meadow's so wet, it yeah. doesn't want to be mowed. Yeah, 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 oh, well. yeah true. Uh, it, it can stay as a meadow. <laughs> you know, that's the way to go. Yes, lovely, lovely, lovely cape weed. Beautiful. Yeah, it's a nice shade of yellow. <laughs> <laughs> Just tell them you're encouraging beneficial insects. <laughs> Fine. There's always got to be an excuse. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. And we must say a very good morning to Greg Balderston from Longinimus Plants. Morning, Greg. Morning, Pam. I, I've done the opposite. I've actually been out in the snow. So yesterday, I spent uh, quite a few hours hiking with a friend up Mount Erica in knee-deep snow. So, <laughs> um, and yeah, where hiking is different to hand weeding. It, it I definitely is. Yeah. <laughs> well, I remember as a teenager. Uh, weeding at your nursery yeah. in an inch of snow and you had to scoop the snow out of the tops of the pots before you yeah, got to, to the weeds. The weeds. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't do that very often anymore. No. Uh, I've no, got I don't an age either. now where I figure, yeah, weeds will be there tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> where yeah. is Mount Erica? Uh, it's near the Thompson Dam and Wellhalla over that, uh, you know, past Mount Borbore. Um, Gippsland. Seriously yeah, yeah. Gippsland. So, so it's on the road up to the Thompson uh, Res. Um, 
and Mount St. Guinea, which is a little toboggan run that they right. keep nice and trimmed. But we went up to Mushroom Rocks, which <laughs> is essentially a dirt road that goes for about 8Ks up the side of a hill and got about uh, 4Ks in and, reali- and put my snow chains on and then had to reverse out a kilometre. Oh. Uh, oh, with the line fun. of... Uh, even the four-wheel drives up there were having difficulty with, with it, and I was up in there in a two-wheel drive van. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So it was a bit exciting. Sounds like yeah. the sort of thing I do. Uh, <laughs> and, then, and I presume and then, you went up there because it was called Mushroom Rock, but there were no mushrooms to be seen. Well, only Mushroom Rock, but they were about three k's past where we could get. Yeah. Um, so we, we parked and then hiked back up. And um, there, it, was, it got to a stage where we're looking at the Regnans branches arching over the, the road, or what was left of the road, because there's acacias fallen down all over it. And... Yeah, at least 30 to 40 centimetres of snow, and it's like, oh, this is probably unsafe. And the wind would blow, and you'd hear crashing in the bushes. Oh. <laughs> well, particularly after what happened around me. I mean, mm. there were f- four people badly injured, one dead yeah. Yeah. from yep. a tree falling That's on. right. Yeah. And, you know, it was only two weeks ago that that man and his child died. Yes, yeah, right. tree. Yes, yep. And I must admit, I was driving somewhere earlier in, in the week. That Was it Wednesday that was so windy? And yeah. I started off going my usual route and I thought, nah, back no, to the no. highway mm. and went a longer route but on bigger roads. Yes, and it's definitely been a bit windier of recent than even when it's a bit gusty because I'll often go for walks in the forest when it's a bit windy up at Mount Macedon and it's sort of like, oh, it's okay, I'll be fine. And then, yeah, the other day no, was No, the like, other day was no, scary. No, this is no good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it was yes, scary. There's a certain level. Yeah. <laughs> Once you get above that, don't do it. Yep. Oh, dear. Oh, well, we're certainly getting challenged with the weather this year, aren't we? Yeah. Well, I have to say I'm pleased that we're getting really serious rains at last. Oh, we're certainly you know, doing so that. So the ground is getting damp, my ponds are filled up, my tanks are full. Uh, the rain woke me up last night. That's yeah, how heavy it was. Yeah, it was quite heavy at times. So, yeah. yes, it, uh, and, of course, I've got a tin roof, so that wakes me mm. up whenever we get a decent but fall. Don from Plant Trust, who lives in Bacchus Marsh, she said he dug down the other day and it was dry. Yeah, but mm. Bacchus Marsh is in a bit of a rain shower. Yes, yeah, it, it is. is. It doesn't dry get the a bone, yeah, isn't it? It yeah. doesn't get rain out there when everybody else does. Mm. That whole Bacchus Marsh sort of melting area mm. uh, can be really, really dry. And you can see the rain going around the hills behind um, Melton and so forth, yep. uh, in between Melton and Gisborne, uh, and you can see the rain up on there and it won't be raining down there. Um, it just flows through. Yeah, yeah they the miss gorgeous, it all the yeah. time. So it's a good place to set up a suburb, really. <laughs> <laughs> no rain. Yes. <laughs> okay. I must get to some community announcements. Now, if you've got no plans for today, apart from cleaning out your sock drawer, um, there is a bonsai show on today. Uh, this is the Waverley Bonsai Group. So it is, uh, it's at the uh, very famous Mount Waverley Community Centre. So it is definitely nice and dry inside mm-hmm. there. And uh, it's open from 10 this morning, running through until 4 o'clock this afternoon. Uh, the community centre, of course, is on the corner of Stevenson's Road and Miller Crescent in Mount Waverley. Admission, adults only, $5, children under 16 are free. And uh, there'll be continuous demonstrations, uh, meet and talk with top bonsai exponents, an excellent display of mature bonsai, a well-stocked uh, trading area with books, pots, trees, tools, wire, advanced stock, semi-trained and fully trained bonsai trees. So uh, that's all happening today if you have nothing better to do. Now, uh, a few other things coming up. Firstly, uh, the Australian Garden History Society 
have got uh, an illustrated lecture coming up next Tuesday, the 13th of August. Um, now, this is being given by Dr. Luke Keogh, and it's entitled The Wardian Case. Uh, so that should be a really fascinating uh, talk to go to. Uh, and uh, for listeners who don't realise, The Wardian Case was a simple portable greenhouse used for moving live plants. It was invented in 1829 by the London doctor Nathaniel Bagshaw Ward. The case uh, revolutionised the movement of plants around the globe. Following its invention, many important economic and ornamental plants could be moved to locations well beyond their home range. And among the many people who benefited from the transport of exotic plants was Redmond Barry, who was an advert avid promoter of horticulture and served as the vice president of the Victorian Horticultural Society. So, as I mentioned, it's coming up next Tuesday, the 13th of August, 6.45pm. The venue is the Mueller Hall, which is at the National Herbarium uh, on the corner of Dallas Brooks Drive and Birdwood Avenue there in Royal Botanic Gardens, Melbourne. Tickets can be purchased at the door. If you're a member of uh, Australian Garden History Society, $20. Non-members, $25. Students with a student card, $10. And if you'd like further information about the talk, you can contact Robin Robbins. Would you believe? Mm. Robin Robbins. Um, but uh, her email uh, contact is, and I'll, I'll spell this, although it's Robin Robbins 2, it's spelled R-O-B-Y-N R-O-B-I-N-S 2 at gmail.com so Robin Robbins 2 at gmail.com just get the Y in the Christian name <laughs> and the I in the surname and then you'll be right okay also coming up <clears throat> uh, Friends of Melton Botanic Gardens have got a talk being given by Professor Tim Entwistle uh, and uh, this is all about the RBGV New Arid Garden now this is on 14th of August, so next week as well. And uh, Tim will be telling everyone all about the new arid garden extending Guilfoyle's volcano. This is very relevant to the Melton Botanic Garden as uh, they have a lot of, uh, or will have a lot of very similar plants. Now, um, the time is 7.30. Uh, as I said, it's Wednesday, 14th of August. The address is the Botanica Springs Community Centre. That's at 249 Clarks Road in Brookfield. Uh, you need to RSVP to John Bentley. His number is 97433819. Leave a message if it's unattended or you can e- email friends at fmbg.org.au. Uh, now, coming up 17th and 18th of August, the Waverley Garden Club and Camellias Victoria have got their annual Camellia Garden and Floral Art Show. The venue is Mount Waverley Community Centre. I've given the address already. <laughs> I think you must know it by heart by now. Um, on the Saturday, 1 o'clock through till 5 o'clock. On the Sunday, 10 through till 4.30. Entry is $5 adults, children free. You can pay at the door. And uh, this iconic show is the largest of its kind in Victoria and has a large variety of displays. 
Um, the Victorian Camellia Championships will feature a hundred, hundreds of blooms on display, including many rare varieties. There'll be plants for sale. Club experts will be on hand for advice. Uh, the Floral Art Championships will also uh, be on display. And uh, posies will be made on the spot and available for sale. That's a nice idea. Someone's going to be sitting there very busy all day. (laughs) Goodness me. Uh, There's a children's competition engaging the younger generation in gardening. Uh, So lots and lots happening for that one. So, as I say, that's coming up the weekend of August 17th and 18th, which, of course, is next weekend. And just a reminder, this is a reminder in advance, Fernie Creek Court Society have got their uh, show coming up weekend of 7th and 8th of September and uh, it will be open from uh, 12 noon till 4 on the 7th and uh, 10 till 4 on the 8th. Uh, Camellias will be a highlight but there will be all sorts of flowers etc from the late winter to early spring. Entry to the show is still $5, children under 16 free and uh, the show is held in the Horticultural Hall within the Fernie Creek Ornamental Gardens at 100 Hilton Road, East Sassafras. Parking's free within the gardens and there are disabled spots near the hall. There'll be two plant stalls selling a good range of plants, including some hard-to-get varieties. The cut flower stall and craft stall will be operating. Light meals, drinks, etc. will be available during the weekend, as will a sausage sizzle. And I know a certain person sitting <laughs> opposite me who loves the sausage sizzle up there. Particularly at Fernie Creek. Yes, I knew it. <laughs> and weather permitting, there'll be regular guided garden walks um, and visits. visitors can also bring a picnic to have in the garden. So... Uh, that's all happening over Goodness the next me. few weeks. So, well, actually, well, we've got something coming up, as <coughs> as in Plant Trust, so probably should mention that while we're doing the uh, the announcements. Uh, our AGM slightly early this year, and if my memory serves me correctly, it's the 28th of August. I'm just checking. Yeah, we better check on this. Anyhow, I'll go into the details of it. And Virginia no, can... that's big ends. Ah. It's the 28th. 29th. 29th. Thursday the 29th. Thursday the 29th is our AGM, which sounds all terribly boring. Um, But in fact, it's fun. Yes, in fact, the AGM of Plant Trust must be one of the most interesting AGMs you can go to. The actual AGM-y bit generally lasts about 10 minutes. Uh, So we get through all that. As that should. Yes, as it should, (laughs) yes. So we don't have, you know, a huge amount of stuff to go through. Uh, So we get the AGM out of the way very quickly. Uh, It starts at uh, 6.30 where you can uh, come along and have a glass of wine with us uh, and some cheese and pickies and things. Um, Very civilised. Yeah, just to set the tone. Um, And then you can have a wander around and have a look at the plants because of course our AGM is our big um, auction night. So um, uh, friends of the plant trust, nursery people, plant uh, trust collection holders, um, all donate plants to uh, the event uh, and yours truly gets up and auctions them all. So um, it's a lot of fun. Uh, There's the opportunity of getting some fairly bizarre and weird and strange and unavailable plants. Um, So for the fanatical plant collector, it's an absolute must. Um, And it's one of the main fundraisers for our organisation each year. So uh, uh, I would recommend you all come along on the 29th and that's at Domain House which is in Dallas Brooks Drive. If you're standing with the herbarium behind you, you look straight ahead and you'll see the white 
brick building just down on the right-hand side in Dallas Brooks Drive. So easy enough Excellent. to find. Should be plenty of parking around there. Because um, it's night time. Because it's night time, yes. And, um, yeah, it's a really fun evening, so I'd recommend everybody try and come along to the AGM, and I promise you won't get elected on anything specific, unless of course you want to, and we're always happy to meet people who would like to become part of the, um, the executive of the organisation as well, because we're always looking for skills. We are. Yeah. We've got lots of unskilled. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> but yes, yes, people with, with particular skills would be very, very gratefully we received. We particularly want an editor. Yes, an editor would be good if somebody oh, wants okay. to be an editor. editor. Would be nice. Yes, yes, we could do with an editor. Mm. And I believe there's somebody who might actually be quite happy to relinquish the job of secretary as well. I wonder who that could be. <laughs> I wonder. Yeah, so there you go. John and Bentley's he, always telling me off for not doing it properly. Yeah, well, I offer him the job. Yeah, and he would do it properly, I'm sure, but he, he doesn't would, want but he it. He doesn't want it. Yeah, yeah, I think he's sort of busy with Melton Botanic Gardens, really. I think he and might I'm be. not. Yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, um, yeah, so it should be a good night. So please, please, please come along. Uh, and if there's anybody out there who's got any really interesting plants that they think they might like to donate, uh, they could get in touch with me uh, if they're up around the Macedon area. They or could me get in, if they're yeah, in the Yarra Valley. Yes, get in touch with Virginia. Uh, I'm sure John Bentley would bring things in from Melton. Um, so we've got people, you know, sort of surrounding. Um, and what we do is we, we only get one or two of a plant. We're looking for interesting plants rather yeah. than bulk. Yeah, we don't bulk. need bulk yes. because otherwise it takes me too 60 hard. pots of privet, for instance. <laughs> no. <laughs> Which they said on the radio yesterday that is poisonous. Yes. Now, there you go. Yeah, but you <laughs> do have to consume it. Let's rip out all those privet, privet hedges yeah. immediately. Yeah, I think you've got to consume it, though, before it becomes yes, poisonous. Yes, I'm sure. Well, yeah. what isn't poisonous, really? Well, exactly, yeah. yes. Oh, yes. exactly. Yeah, mm. whiskey, dosage. <laughs> dosage. Yeah, <laughs> lots of poisonous stuff out there. So, um, yeah, so we don't, yes, we definitely do not want 60 privet plants. But uh, if you've got anything really interesting that, you know, spare and um, you don't need it at the moment, well, we could use it in raise some funds with it and mm. have a good fun night. Excellent. So there we go. So that's the Plant Trust AGM on the 29th of this month. Fantastic. Which, which is a Thursday. Yes. Okay. All right. Good. All right. Having got all of that off our chest, Greg, you seem to have had an amazing fungi season this year. It, it's <clears throat> The variety that came up this year is actually a lot smaller than usual because of the... So the season was out of... Whack, like everything was due to the weather and not raining for four months, which mm. tends to do that to yes. pretty much everything. Um, so it all started late, and then some things didn't happen at all. Okay. Uh, but other things were amazing. So, yeah, this, uh, it's always fun to take the camera out and snap some photos of things. And certainly I got some nice shots of um, the little blue Mycena interrupters and... Um, uh, they're, they're in, an incredible blue, Greg. It's and they vary a lot too. So the some of them you find they're almost a white blue, and then okay. uh, uh, others you find. I, I found one in a log that had been burnt by frost, and they tend to go a little greyish. Uh, they sort of lose their mm. their blue, but then water sat on it, and it, so it was this deep sort of like metallic blue grey. Okay. Um, so yeah, you get this, even though they're all blue, they they vary in in blueness, I guess. Right. Um, Could that so be a subspecies. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. Well, th- that's a weird thing with fungi because they don't do the same things as plants yeah. and animals do. They've got weird sex lives, I guess. Yeah. They're, they're, uh, they're the way they swap genes and everything. I still haven't wrapped my head around it. Mm. Um, and uh, you know, there's interspecies. So you'll get a mushroom that's made up of two. Different Two species different ones, of yeah. things, yeah. So it's uh, um, well, lichens, for instance. You know, you've yeah. got 
two different families of uh, two different kingdoms of things yeah, of getting together getting to do together. something. Yeah, yeah, um, it, it, it is. It, that so minute world is really fast. so it throws it all out, and um, yeah, it's a bit hard to wrap your head around a lot of that mm. stuff. But yeah, the, uh, it's pretty much there's not much around at the moment. You, you can still. Uh, you know, head up to somewhere like Sanitarium Lake or up in the Dandenongs. There'll be still something around, but um, well, I would imagine all this rain would rot them, wouldn't it? It's the cold that the seems cold to do them in. Yeah, yeah, right. So, so once once it gets once you get snow or heavy frost, it usually slow, everything slows down once, yep. once that sort of so hits. do humans. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then you get another little spurt in spring as it warms up again of a few different species that do their thing in spring. Um, but uh, yeah, it was it was interesting because there was lots of round of certain things, and then there's fungi that I see a lot of usually, and uh, basically didn't see any of it, like mm. saffron. Of course, the fungi's still there, isn't it, Greg? It's not the fungi has disappeared; it's just that it has yeah. to it's just underground. Yeah, yeah. Body. So, so yeah. The, what we think of mushrooms and fungi is just the flower and fruit part of the organism, mm. and the shrub tree plant part of the organism is all hidden in a branch that it's growing in or in in the soil or just underneath the leaf litter or um uh and it's like you say it's there all the time Mm. and you also get ones that persist for years um like mycorrhizal fungi which will which are on most of our plants in our gardens um which we love yeah uh, and and there's very few that are bad for the garden um and they're usually there for a reason if they are um but uh, and then you've got other fungi, I think, that are almost like annuals, where mm. they do their thing and that organism dies and it just spreads spores Here's everywhere. Here's a really silly question, probably: Is Amalaria a mycorrhizal fungi? Uh, Amalaria is a parasitic fungi. It's parasitic, yeah. Right. So, so that's probably the worst bad. of the parasitic ones. Mm. But often, if your tree has it, um, it, it's for a reason. Like it's you, you won't have a perfectly healthy tree. Get an malaria infection. Yeah. It's usually I know due to stress a or something. street else. in Kew where it's just gradually worked through house after house yeah. after house. And I mean, I don't think all those trees were particularly yeah. sick. So, so you get um, a lot of eucalyptus out in the forest with malaria, mm. and the forest is perfectly fine. So mm. it's only affecting the trees that have had scar tissue on the roots, or maybe the winds knock them around a bit and it's, it's busted a crack. So that, that it has to get into the, uh, the tree somehow. Um, and it's one of the few that seem to actively kill the tree. So you yes. get other parasitic fungi, like um, there's quite a, a common one called uh, uh, um, Gymnopilus, which most people would have seen. It's a big orange mushroom. It looks like a field mushroom type shape, but it's sort of an orangey colour, and it'll grow out the base of stumps. Yes, I've and seen it. And I think technically that's parasitic as well. But it can live on trees for years and years and years and years. Without and one, killing them. Without killing it. Mm. And if for whatever reason the tree does die, it'll grow out of the stump and the root system out of the ground for years and years. So you get these big clusters. Mm. Um, you know, sometimes the mushrooms are 20 centimetres across individually, but you'll get a cluster of 100 of those 20 centimetre mushrooms come out in the same spot. So you get these huge, wow. big... And, of course, what it's doing is is eating up. Yeah, so it, that, once, once mean, the trees it, 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 die, very, it's just very separate good. trophic, yeah. yeah. So it's just... Sort of those... Oh, well, that's what makes your soil. That's yeah. what, you know, if we mm. wouldn't have soil if it wasn't for fungi. Uh, I th- I'm reading somewhere recently, and I could be wrong here, but I, uh, from what we, I... We won't know. What I, what I understand, <laughs> there's only two things that eat wood, and one's 
uh, termites. Termites termites are the only insect that actually eat wood and digest it. And everything, all the other insects that we associate from eating wood are actually digesting fungi and other things inside the wood. And so if you, if you open so up... So borers aren't necessarily... They're not eating, they're not eating they're not wood. They're, they're making holes through it. Yeah. Tunnelling through. So if you, if you look yeah. at behind the borer, mm. it's just wood chips. Yeah. yeah. So that's what comes out the other end is just wood chips. Mm. And what they're doing is digesting things like fungi and bacteria or whatever. I think it's mainly fungi. So mm. mo- most of the things that we think are eating wood are actually just digesting all the other organisms in the wood oh, and then right. pooing yeah. out... Just wood. <laughs> it's cleaned, cleaned wood. <laughs> Years ago, I, um, speaking of termites, I was ringing around for a house down at Point Lonsdale that had termites, and I was ringing around looking for someone to come, and I rang up this company, and he said, oh, yes, yes, we've done a house at Point Lonsdale recently. Yeah, we'll come and have a look. I said, oh, how's that house? He said, oh, we've rec- recommended demolition. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it can get to that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so the, like you say, the, the fungi that eat the wood, which is quite a lot of them, they're what make our soil. That's what mm. we've got soil for mm. is, is things like that. Yeah, so people who are paranoid about fungi coming up in the lawns or uh, in amongst their shrubs and things probably should be a little bit more relaxed about these things. Well, just enjoy the fungi. They're, yeah, well, cool they are, they're things. wonderful, yeah, wonderful it's, things. It's, they're, they're just fascinating yeah, creatures to they, watch. They, re- they really are. And, and they come and up so fast and they do their thing and they seem to have... They seem to have no particular interest in other organisms around them. They're just <clears throat> them. But, but they're also tying all the other organisms together in yeah. a lot of... Especially if you're looking at a native or, a, you know, a, a something in the wild mm. where the fungi's evolved with all the plants, that fungi that we don't think much of is actually what's tying all that stuff together. And that might be uh, tying it back into gardening. It might be a really important thing that we've sort of overlooked for up until now, mm. I guess, is the fact that We've got all our plants in the garden that we tend to and we put lots of fertilisers and, you know, doing all these things to keep our plants healthy, but we've never really looked at uh, the, mycorrhizal. the fact that a lot of those plants need uh, the mycorrhizal fungi to survive um, mm-hmm. on their root systems, but also the saprotrophic, the recycling fungi to break down our leaf litter. Yeah. So, you know, raking up leaves constantly isn't good for your soil. You, yep. You're starving the soil of nutrients that if you left it there for even a little while, the fungi get their mycelium. Oft, I, I don't know if you've ever noticed raking up leaves that have been sitting there for a while. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. The mycelium yeah. gets up into them really it quickly. Does. yes. So even if you leave them there for a little bit longer, the nutrients are going into the soil. So exactly. that those fungi are sucking that, the nutrients from those leaves down but into the soil. there is absolutely no doubt that nature does not want a tidy gardener. No. No. No, Which means that's why I'm a good gardener. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, I'll take I'll take some uh, credit for that as well. Yeah. Um, I'm I was going to say too, the other, th- yeah, the, the other thing that I find really interesting as a nursery person too is conifers because conifers are almost always associated with a mycorrhizal mm. fungi, and you'll often. Well, I hope you always do, in fact. If you tap a conifer out of a pot, you'll find that there's this sort of white film around its roots. Mm. And I regularly get people who go slightly panicky and say, well, there's something wrong with my conifer. But, in fact, if it's got all that white film in the pot, it just means that it's got its own mycorrhiza there and everything is fine for it to go out into the ground. Well, so it's, exactly. it's almost essential for it yeah. to have yes, that. Yeah, exactly. If it hasn't got so that, pe- then people get really wrong. freaked out because they just think that there's some nasty It's mould or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and you get a free organism that does something too. Like, yeah, so, yeah. So you've got... Yeah, I should charge more for those. Yeah, ones. that's right. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, because they're going to live. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, so that especially the mycorrhizal is, like you say, the conifers, and and most plants have mycorrhizal partners. Yeah. Um, but the conifers are probably the best known ones. For well, the, and the it's the most obvious on their roots for some reason or another. Their particular yeah. mycorrhizal seem to be very obvious. Mm. And in fact, if I'm sowing conifer seed, uh, I generally go out and find an old conifer somewhere, scrape the fresh litter off the surface, and get some of the mouldy litter. That's a underneath. very good idea. And I sprinkle it with the, the seed tray, I sprinkle it over the seed tray, and uh, all things being equal, that's going to introduce the mycorrhizal so that as the seedlings germinate, they will, they will immediately be in contact with the necessary fungi and, and they'll hopefully grow away mm. and be much healthier and happier mm. having done that. Yeah. So, yes, and I you've got a much stronger tree that's mm. can uh, because that mycorrhizal fungi gets access to water and nutrients that the tree root system's too big and clunky to do. Mm. So the little mycorrhizal root hairs can get down in between, you know, tiny little spaces in the soil and rocks and things to get access to water and nutrients Mm. that the plant can't get. Mm. So if you've got those healthy mycorrhizal fungi in your garden that are good for the plants that you're growing, um, and if you've got native gardens, that's a really easy thing to be able to achieve in Australia because we've got all the native fungi here that you can introduce into your garden and you've got a much healthier, stronger, more resilient garden by introducing those things into there. Mm. Yeah. So, so, yeah, really, really interesting thing. And I, I think um, I, I think going into the future, probably something that we might sort of have more access to as time goes on, uh, you know, when people are doing research into it. And, mm. you know, you might be able to buy fertiliser that's inoculated with, you know, some type of mycorrhizal fungi that makes your plants much mm. more resilient to drought yes. or something. Yeah, yeah. I, I, can, I mean, there's, there's so much research that people are starting to undertake because they realise the importance of it. Yep. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I imagine lots of development in the future. Yeah. Yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's, quite a, it's actually a pretty exciting time for, for biology because it yeah. really hasn't been looked at. There's, um, in fact, the first, I believe the first mycologist who was that's what they studied, was actually Beatrix Potter. There's an okay. really interesting documentary right, on Radio yeah. National a couple of years ago, um, and uh, I love her drawings anyway, just from the kids' books, but that was her, because she was a woman, they wouldn't give her a doctorate uh, in, in the field. So she drew some amazing bats. Yeah, but have you seen her fungi illustrations? Yeah. So yeah. she was, um, as far as I know, I'm, I'm aware, she was the first person to watch... Uh, fungi spores germinate and grow hyphae out of them un- in a microscope and draw and drew them. So she was drawing plates mm. of as she watched it elapse over you know hours or however right. long it takes for it to do it. And she'd look there and draw that. And Fantastic. so she's got these like little cartoon mm. flick books yeah. of um, uh, spores growing hyphae wow. uh, from well before anyone else was really studying them. Yeah. Wow. So, so amazing uh, woman and, and a really interesting story too. I, th- I think the podcast's still available on yeah, the science yeah. show on Radio National. Okay. Um, but, yeah, very, very interesting. <laughs> we, we should also alert listeners that if they want to have a look at some of your fantastic fog, uh, photography um, of all these different fungi, um, it's up on Facebook. Yeah, so... so one of the easiest places on Facebook is the Macedon Ranges Fungi Flora and Fauna. Um, there's other really good fungi groups on Facebook too. If you go looking, the Victorian Fungi Group is a really good one. Um, so, and you also get to see other people's photos from around Mount Macedon as well um, on the Mount Macedon, the, the Macedon Ranges Fungi Flora and Fauna Group. 
Um, I think my Facebook page is open to the public, so I've got probably about eight or 10,000 photos on there of, of bulbs and fungi and everything else. Um, and if you're on Instagram, it's at, at Longanomus. Um, and again, there's about eight and a half thousand photos on there. You can and, what, and what's the Facebook name that it's under? Uh, Your page? My, uh, Greg, Greg Bolderston. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So that, that's open to the public. I think mm. you can look through all my photos on there. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, so a couple of the groups on Facebook, the Tasmanian Fungi and the Victorian Fungi are really good ones too. Excellent. Um, there's, it goes from people that are really good at photography and take amazing photos to people that uh, take still good photos of stuff that you don't get to see very often because they're you know out studying it or right. uh, mycologists out in the field um, uh, who have found something really interesting and they know it's interesting so they'll take a photo of it and talk about it and yep. so so they're really good value groups if you're inter- interested in the fungi yeah excellent okay well it's high time we invited our listeners to join us if you'd like to ask a gardening question this morning we'd love to hear from you the number is nine four one nine. 0155 to speak to the team on air. We've got Stephen Ryan, Virginia Haywood and Greg Bolderston in the studio. Or if you'd like to have a chat to uh, Carol on the outside line, 94198377. Stephen, time to go to a couple of plants. And, of all course, right. these, I presume, are all up on our Facebook they page. They certainly are up on the Facebook page. Uh, so you can go in and have a look at the images. I took pictures of them yesterday and sent them off to Liz. So they're, they're up and running. Just go to the 3CR Gardening Show. Exactly. Yeah, so great, great asset, that. Um, all right, where do I start? I think I might start with this little yellow number. Um, this is a plant that it was for a long time known as Ranunculus fecaria, the lesser celandine, um, and there's a whole range of different forms of this plant out there. Um, and look, I have to admit that they can get a little willing, <laughs> to say the least, in the right sort of, if they've got a slightly heavyish soil and it's moist during the winter, uh, they can run quite away. But they're very ephemeral. They come up in the, in the midwinter, they flower through the late winter into early spring, you get one warm day and they start collapsing uh, and they disappear <coughs> for the summer. Uh, they have little um, uh, tubers underneath them uh, and so if you are turning the ground you can spread them. It's like rice. Yeah, it Almost is. Yeah, like, like little big grains of rice or something, rice or tiny yeah. little things. Um, uh, but it stays fairly flat to the ground. There's very few plants that lesser celandine would actually swamp in the garden, and it does give a, uh, an ephemeral seasonal interest in the garden. Now, the normal form has those wonderfully glossy yellow buttercup-style flowers, um, but there's a whole range of different ones out there. There's double-flowered ones, there's white-flowered ones, there's apricot-orange-flowered ones, and then there's coloured leaf ones. And the one I've brought along today is... Um, has the classical yellow flower, uh, but its foliage is the most wonderful sort of grey and black and green marbling. Um, so I'd grow this for its foliage alone, mm. personally. Uh, it's just the most wonderful leaf. Uh, warning, though, if you collect lesser celandines, and oh, by the way, their name is now Ficaria verna, so they've had a name change like so many other things that I'm trying to keep up with, um, if you have a range of different ones in the garden, if you have the doubles, they're sterile and they don't crossbreed and they don't set seed and drop seed around. So they're less likely to take off in the garden. But the singles are, of course, all fertile and they will cross. 
So if you've got um, this one or Brazen Huzzy, which is a completely blackish-leafed one. Um, uh, there's that silver variegated one too, yes, isn't there, that's yeah. got a much stronger yeah. silver. Yes, know. there is. There's a lovely yeah. sort of silvery one. There's a whole range of them. Um, um, but if you've got the, two, the different varieties near each other, they will cross-pollinate and you could end up with a swarm of mixed seedlings which may or may not suit you i mean if you're trying to keep a named cultivar going that's probably where these came from a lot of the time isn't it from having different Uh, well i know brazen huzzy the blackish leafed one was found by christopher lloyd in a sussex wood Mm. uh somewhere and he lifted a little piece of it out which supposedly is illegal uh planted it in his garden he's dead now so they can't tell him off (laughs) But yeah. having said that, he dug something out of the wild and put it in his garden, and when he went back to find it again at some other stage, uh, the wood had been cleared. Mm. Oh. So he actually protected the plant. So I think sometimes you've got to look at these things from a broader context and just say, all right, well, yes, we don't encourage people to dig things up out of the wild, and certainly I wouldn't encourage people here to be digging native orchids or something. Oh, like gosh, that. no. It's funny you should say that because... They could have recently, there was some bulldozer work somewhere, oh. I think in Western Australia, oh. that basically wiped out an entire population of a very rare orchid because oh. they put the bulldozer in the wrong spot and flattened the whole area. So oh. it, it just makes me weep when I hear Co- stories. Collection's like, good. Yeah, collection is good, but it's, as as it's got to be done properly. properly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so Christopher Lloyd found this dark black one and he called it Brazen Huzzy, which I thought was a lovely name. And, uh, uh, and it has probably spawned some of these other varieties. So this one's one called Brambling. Um, and uh, I think it's charming. I just love it. I think the... the interesting mottling in the foliage it, it is just beautiful and it will die down as the spring comes on disappear for the rest of the year i won't see it again until midwinter next can year can i say i think that is something that is wonderful things that disappear over our very hard summer yeah and you, you know they're going of, to survive you don't have to they'll be it. there yeah. and, and these these would be okay too in low traffic lawny shady lawny yeah, areas too because i've got too. them yeah, you know, just just so that different. there's something there at another time of the yeah. year um but yeah don't introduce them into your rock garden where you've got your high alpines or something growing because they'll just be a damn nuisance um, but in the right spots in the garden I have some of these com- that come up just under deciduous shrubs so when the shrubs bare and there's nothing to look at um, uh, these are doing their thing mm. and um, uh, and actually I've got uh, brazen huzzy the, the black leafed one uh, tends to come up around the edges of a big patch of, of silver stackies the, the lamb's ears and in fact it comes up through the stackies as well That'd be lovely. Yeah. Uh, and it looks great yes, and it it's would. all absolutely by accident <laughs> I don't even know how the brazen huzzy ended up in there I must have, there must have been a bit of it in my it, spent potting it, mix or something that well it does home. have the name yeah, mm. yes, and, and, and it does look very brazen in amongst the silver of the, of the stackies so, uh, but do keep your different varieties separated if you want to keep them Pristine, pure, and what have you. I went to Christopher Lloyd's garden this year. It's the mm. first time for about twenty years I'd visited it. Oh, it's so lovely. No, I hesitate to go back. I want to go back in one sense, but because I used to be a house guest and knew Christo, Christo personally. Going there was about him as much as it mm. was about the garden, and I feel really weird about going back and he's not there. It'll sort of feel it's like somehow going to your hollow. family home yes. after someone else has been living there for twenty years and. Yeah, sort of changed it. Yeah, <laughs> it, it does. It, it somehow doesn't seem quite right. I know I'd be welcome, and and I probably will do it one day. And uh, I, and I think I think Christopher Lloyd would expect you to because he has set it up so yeah. that it stays in yeah. perpetuity. Yes, he has. So yeah, uh, yeah one day I'll I'll be doing a trip to England. I'll say to Craig, let's let's do it. Let's go down to Dixter, and mm. uh, so we'll give Fergus a ring and say we're on our way. 
and uh, I will do it one day. And I'll probably be there, or I might be there, when their colony of brazen hussy in the garden there is in flower, which is, I know exactly where it is in the sunk garden, uh, where that sunken pond is, uh, and there's a whole patch of it up one end, and it has crocosmias growing in the same bed, so the, you know, the crocosmias start coming up in the late winter, so you've got these bright green spears sticking up out of the and ground, the, with the black leaf of uh, brazen wow. husky under yeah. I think that's an inspired combination. Yeah. Yeah. It looks fantastic. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so there you go, so that's Ficaria verna now, not Ranunculus Ficaria, um, and this variety is called Bramley, and I've got about five or six different forms of it that I grow at the nursery. I think I've got two or three doubles uh, plus a, a range of different single ones. Mm. I think they're charming little plants. Fantastic. So do we want to do another one while we're uh, Yes, I will just give out the phone number. If you'd like to join us this morning, 94190155 or to speak to Carol on the outside line, 94198377. All right, uh, I can't help myself, got to talk about another oxalis. Um, uh, this oxalis can be used as an indoor plant. So there you go. <laughs> That's yeah. really stretching our listeners. You know, it's not, They're because once it's inside, it can't get out of hand. Can That's it? true. That's yeah, true. Yeah. So uh, okay. this, I bought this many, many years ago as Oxalis regnelliae, um, but it has since been sunk into another species. Um, and it's got a very unfortunate name now. Uh, it's one of the South American ones, and it doesn't have a bulb under it. It has a slowly creeping and branching rhizome, so okay. it doesn't have a bulb. Yep. Um, and it's now called uh, Oxalis triangularis subspecies papillionacea. Oh, my God. Yes, yeah, that's what I thought when I found out the name had been changed. Um, and it's a great indoor plant. It, it, indoors, it stays basically evergreen. Right. Um, and it flowers virtually all year round. Okay. So when you consider it... it gives value, um, and its leaves close up at night, so you can watch the leaves sort of curl down. Which is probably where the subspecies name comes from, isn't yeah, it? The, well, the it well butterfly be. wings yeah. folding up? Yeah, so, yes, yeah, so papillionaceae, yes. yeah. Yes. Um, and so, you know, in the morning when you get up, you can see its leaves are just starting to open up again, um, and so it's entertaining as well where as Where does it pretty. live in your house? Does well, this one life? doesn't actually live, live in my house. This one actually lives in my office at the nursery, so it sits on my office desk, which doesn't get Huge amounts of direct sunlight. In fact, virtually no direct sunlight would shine on it, although they'll cope with direct light through a window as long as it's not 42 degrees outside. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but they will cope with reasonably low light levels. It has a pure white flower, uh, which I think is rather sweet. Um, and, yeah, these pretty sort of butterfly leaves. And mm. so I think um, oxalis is an indoor plant. There you go. There's a, a, a completely different take. I have uh, to say I, I, I like that one. It, it is really elegant. And, of course, the one it's been sunk in with, uh, the, what, the other form of triangularis, um, has purple leaves and pinky mauve flowers. Oh, I've got which, that. Yeah, yeah, which is beautiful. I got that from yeah, you, you, probably Greg. would have got it from me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, and, and, and that's a good pot plant, too. Yeah, for, it's good for indoors. Because that doesn't need pots. really any water on its foliage. No. Because it's better it's not better to not get the to, leaves yeah, wet, yeah, yeah, because they're inclined to get a rather nasty fungal disease. Yeah. Uh, so if you keep the leaves dry and any water from the top of the pot or from underneath, then you keep the leaves nice and dry and you don't seem to get the fungal disease. And, and if they're in a little bit of shade too, the leaves get massive on the... Uh, they get quite large and um, form 
quite big clusters yeah. of leaves oh, yeah, off them too. Yeah, you can get, end up with a, you know, this is only a baby. I mean, I only potted this up in this little and terracotta is, pot a month or two ago. Is that, so triangularis often will pop up in winter, but mm. it does most of its growing in the yeah, summer months? Mainly a summer is, month. is this uh, one the same as it that? It is basically the same. It okay. has the same sort of growth pattern, so normally it's summer growing, but if you keep it indoors, it's basically evergreen. Yeah, uh, it's an so opportunist yeah, for growing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's a really nice indoor plant. And, of course, as we all know, Houseplants are becoming a thing again. Oh, gosh, yes. You know, there's houseplant groups on Facebook. There's people out there paying absolutely ridiculous amounts of money for variegated monsteras. Uh, <laughs> every, time, every now and again round here, there's two things in Fitzroy that are absolutely berserk. One is this croissant shop. Mm. I mean, who can get that excited about a croissant? The queues will go a whole block. Mm. And they're all tourists. It's obviously on some face. They come by taxi to Fitzroy. I like croissants, but I wouldn't line up for one. Yeah, no, no, I wouldn't either, Greg. No, I don't line up for anything. Much. No, 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 that's and right. the, but the other thing you see queuing for is every now and again they have an indoor plant sale here. Mm, right. Yes. And the queues just stretch yeah. right It does. Yeah. Right yeah. around the block. And look, yes. I'm, I'm, I'm not being uh, nasty about it. I think the fact that people are growing house plants again and are really getting excited by them, I think is a good thing. Uh, so I want to encourage people to do it. The problem I now have is, of course, as a rare plant nurseryman, I'm now getting every second person coming in, have you got any house plants? And so I've had to go around my nursery and figure out the things that will, will grow. grow as indoor plants. And a lot of them will. Oh, it's surprising what you can grow. I mean, you could grow my pine as a house plant, a uh, Norfolk Island pine. Um, there's uh, 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 an agathus, the cowrie pine, would make a great indoor plant until it hits the ceiling. The ruscus would uh, <laughs> probably grow inside. Yeah, ruscus would grow in inside. The, in a cupboard. Uh, <laughs> yes. And, and I, have, um, uh, I have a sterile bushy ivy that I grow, uh, which, of course, all the ivies would oh, that's grow. A, is that the little upright? Yeah, a little upright yeah, yeah, one, erected, yeah. which is really He's fun. one of those. Um, and so I've been going to my nursery trying yeah. to find the things that could actually work as houseplants uh, and, point, and so that I can point them out to people because uh, I don't want to discourage them from making a purchase. And if oh, they've no. only got an indoors to work with, well, good on them. That's right. You know, yeah, I'm not sure about the uh, bringing back of the anodized pots we used to have back in the 60s <laughs> and 70s, but, um, but I think they're popular too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yes, I still remember those brightly coloured anodised pots with the sort of pimply outside yes, on them yes. you know, <laughs> uh, that people went nuts for and they'd put their monstera or their ficus in it. Um, but anyhow, look, if all things uh, new again and uh, I'm pleased to see that people are, because, you know, for the last 10, 15 years and it's still going gangbusters have been the sort of vegetable, edible growing thing. It's nice to see people going off in an ornamental direction, even if it's not in fact... Outdoor plants. Well, the other thing too is that Melbourne and Sydney, particularly Sydney, last year had air pollution as bad as Peking. Quite mm. often, Beijing. Excuse me, I'm mm. showing my age again. But um, you know, that bad. Mm. We we sort of stare at China and say, oh, they're so polluted. But C- Sydney and Melbourne's been doing this too. And to have some plants in your house mm. does help keep your air clean. Mm. Yeah, they tend to do that. It's mm. a, they're pretty. And, bad and they, they keep your mind happy as well because you see a green thing I mean anywhere you see a green thing you're, you're likely to feel better exactly so yeah. and, and space wise too in there'd be a lot of uh, people living in Melbourne that don't have anywhere outside to grow stuff anyway so yeah. being able to grow something inside's just 
you know, taking advantage of what they have to... Uh, yeah, so it's definitely there you go, I've got an oxalis I can grow as a houseplant there. <laughs> well, I've got a lot of yellow oxalis <laughs> in my garden. I don't think that would do as well as a houseplant. <laughs> I Although it probably would, would actually. <laughs> yeah, it, it possibly would. But, you know, this one specifically seems to do well as an Actually, we plant. should try that because that would be somewhere where it could grow and you didn't have to hate it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's true, though. It's, it's certainly... Because pescaprey is a really pretty plant. It's just a terrible noxious weed. Yes, I've got a double-flowered one in my collection that uh, I, I thought that was compressor too. floroplina, but there's some people saying that it's actually I a double form think it's, of, yeah, of I think it's pescapri. A double pescapri. Although its foliage seems smaller, um, and it's certainly lovely. I mean, you've got this wonderful big double yellow flower with sort of bronzy backs to the petals. Well, it'd be cute. sterile too, being yeah, double, yeah, wouldn't it, it anyway? It's so it's not going to seed, which is the main reason why pescapres the problem is yeah. because of the seeds, not mm. because it divides a lot, which it does, mm. but it it's sure the, seed, the seeds yeah, but are the problem. it can move faster yeah. by seed than yep. it can ever do by bulb. So, so I go around just pulling it all, just... Yeah, taking the top slash, off. Just mm. taking the top off, slashing it, yeah, yep. as, as a way of trying to weaken it. Doesn't seem I to don't work. Think it works. No, it yeah. doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> it no, doesn't. It'll make you feel better. Yeah yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there you go. So there's two of my things. Uh, we haven't had let's any. Go yeah, yeah, let's go to one with Greg. Well, I'll go. I've bought an oxalis in two, of Good. course. Good. Well, let's talk about um, it. Which is my favourite, I guess. It's uh, uh, oxalis versa colour, little candy cane barber's pole oxalis, and it's opened up since I've bought it in the studio. You bring it indoors, and the yeah, warmth yep. in here has brought um, it into flower. So that's. It's. Uh, a uh, uh, South African uh, oxalis, um, and it flowers from usually from midwinter. It's probably one of the longest flowering oxalis. Yeah, it goes really on too, for months. Yeah, fantastic so, value. Uh, again, foliage-wise, it's got beautiful foliage, like most of the oxalis do. It's got very fine. Almost conifery. Yeah, it's not. It's it not clover. Nothing no. like a clover. Yeah, no. Little, little, tiny, You'd never very pick narrow. It as an oxalis yeah, narrow leaves, nice. and yeah. this one's a little bit leggy. But if you've got them in a sunny spot, they form quite Nuts. a dense little. I've uh, got almost sort of a baseball sort of yeah. clump. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I reckon if I put. So I would have originally bought this off you, Stephen, when I was about oh, fourteen probably, or something. Yeah, probably. Um, if if I had all my oxalis versicolor bulbs in one pot from those ori- that r- original pot I got from you, you'd still fit them in what a fourteen-inch tub or something. Yeah. So it's not. Yeah, it it's not run. a weed. It's not yellow. Unless you pick, dig it up and spread the bulbs physically, it just tends to make a dense clump. Yeah. So, um, and, and it doesn't even multiply as fast no. as I'd like no, it to. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, some of the nicest oxalis actually, funnily enough, yeah. are the ones that take longest to multiply. So, yes, to get commercial quantities of some of these things can where, take ages. Where does the yellow one come from? That's South African. The so yellow pe- one is South African. Pescapre is South yeah, African and that too. One? And this one's South American. Right. Uh, and that's one of the interesting things with Oxalis too. There's two big concentrations of species. The biggest is in South Africa, but there's also a high concentration of species in South America. And many of the South American ones are actually high alpine ones, which are absolutely mm. drop-dead gorgeous and almost impossible to keep. And, uh, and some of them, we even share the same species in Australia we do, too. yes. Because yeah, uh, I was going to say, we do have one or two here as well. Sorry. Uh, in, <laughs> <laughs> uh, in fact, one of my, my only wins with um, this business about banning plants and things was the fact that I pointed pointed out when the New South Wales government decided to ban oxalis as a genus, that they were also then therefore banning oxalis magellanica, which is on the endangered species list and is native to Mount Kosciuszko. Mm. And so they went, oops. And so they decided to still ban oxalis, but 
excluding native species yeah, is yeah. apparently what they put into the band. And, oh. uh, and even that's tricky because there's I know there's a couple of native species around Mount Masson mm. that look exactly like Corniculata, which is another South yeah. African species, I believe. Um, and the difference between the species is really hard to find. Yeah. They're, yeah, they're so, very similar. Yeah, so, so, anyhow, so it's a southern hemispheric... Tends yeah, to be, but yeah. there are there's 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 um, species in North America. Um, there's the wood sorrel of North America. It's uh, done okay. Yeah, as a, as, a, as a as a genus, it's yeah, done pretty it's well. Yeah, it's moved itself around. You could say <laughs> it's pretty well. Um, um, in every country, there'll be some species of oxala somewhere. Well, you know the cockroach lived closest to the epicentre of Hiroshima. Mm. So maybe oxalis will be around after we've managed to finish the world off. Oh, probably will. Yeah. In fact, you'll have big double flowers. Some nice hybrids. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> along, along with the cockroach. Yeah, yeah. Climbing oxalis <laughs> so, and sort of tangling everywhere. So the ver- versicolor's got, it's essentially a white flower with a red edging on the outside. The barber's pole. Yeah. Yeah, so... so it's actually at its best when it's before the flowers open. As yeah. the flowers open, they're just white because the insides of the petals are pure white. Um, so when you've got one in the sun that's fully opened, you've got beautiful fine foliage with these little white stars all across the top, um, and you only get to enjoy the little pink edges as, as it closes up or before it opens up. And they do close and open, most oxaluses at least, close and open with the sun. So they open when it's sunny and they close at night. There are exceptions. I've got one that is tentatively called Fragrance, which is night flowering and perfumed, mm. uh, which is a great sales thing because it always opens just after the nursery closes. Um, <laughs> but, you know, most of them are sort of generated by light, so they, they will close at night. Even this little one that I use as an indoor plant, its flowers will close up at night when the lights are off. Okay. It is it up. light or heat? I've, I've always I wondered whether it's light or, exactly or heat. Well, it look, could be a bit of both. It could be, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Because yep. certainly if I have it in my office where there's no heater on, um, it will still be open when I walk into oh, my okay. office in the middle of the day yep. when there's light out. So it'll still be open, but it may take longer to open. Yep. So the heat, I think, helps to... Well, that thing was that, closed that, when you walked in. That blew out now. pretty quick, didn't yeah. it? Yeah. So the warmth will bring them out. Um, but it is, you know, uh, in the garden, they tend to close at night as well. But to, uh, the indoor plant-wise, having oxalis in pots, and which are, most of the species do do really well in pots... The good thing is if it mightn't be able to, all of them live inside, but if you bring them inside at night time at a dinner party or something, they'll be open within about half an hour. On yeah. the- <laughs> I take them to meetings closed and then they're open by the time I get to talk about them at the uh, end of the meeting. It's good. Yeah. Fair well, enough. We've got a call. And it's all about Oxalis. We're going to <laughs> Maria in Mount Waverley. Good morning, Maria. Good morning, fellas. Good morning. Um, I have a big problem. Hello. I need help. Maria? Yes, Maria. Oh, I haven't got my earphones on. No wonder I can't hear you. Sorry. Yeah. Um, I have a big problem with Oxalis in the lawn. Yeah. And it has crept into the flower beds. And I'm desperate to get rid of them. How do they, does it spread? Because there's no flowers. It's just the bulbs underneath. Yeah, well, they spread by the bulbs, um, so oxalis is inclined to move around that way. And it does depend on which oxalis you've got as to how it spreads. I mean, there are some that don't have bulbs. Some of the creeping oxaluses mm. uh, if just have a root. She is talking about one with bulbs. Yeah. So, so it's probably, if, uh, is it, has it, uh, does it ever flower? Has it got a yellow flower when it does? Much later in the season, but... Um, it is just everywhere, and I'm really desperate to get rid of it. Uh, yeah, well, you won't. Um, I don't like to be a, a bearer of bad tidings, but 
you're very unlikely to control or keep oxalis out of a garden once it's got a really good hold. Um, And especially if it's growing right through your lawns, you can try some of those weed and feed type products, but I don't know how successful they would be uh, on oxalis. And you do have to be careful using them because um, the poison that's in them will kill broadleaf things, so hence it should kill the oxalis and leave the lawn alone. But it will move through the soil a bit with rain. And if you've got a slight slope on your lawn, uh, you could end up having an impact on plants on the lower side of the lawn that growing in the garden beds. Mm. Um, uh, you can, as Virginia said, keep ripping the tops off things, but I don't know that you have any long-term uh, harm or cause any long-term harm to the oxalis. You can try excluding light from it, which means you can't do that on the lawn. Um, but certainly in the garden beds, you could put down thick layers of um, that, That's of probably one of the most effective ways yeah, to do it, I think. Yeah. If you can stop it from getting light for at least a couple of years, then you'll get on top of it. But even then, it'll come up in against... It's going to come up. It's going to come up against the sides of um, trunks of shrubs and things as and well. often uh, trying to remove the bulbs out of the ground yeah. uh, often actually makes it worse it's because you're spreading the soil and yeah. you're spreading it Yeah, more. so you shouldn't dig oxalis bulbs because you do just tend to spread them. And you're them. never going to find them all because no. they're tiny. Yeah. yeah. So the, uh, as I rather flippantly say to most people, the best way to get rid of oxalis is to put a for sale sign on your house. <laughs> Uh, and then, of course, you'll move somewhere and you'll end up with onion weed instead. But um, <laughs> Can I just uh, tell you, somebody told me to cover with um, cardboard. Yeah. Yep. And uh, I'm just thinking, if I cover with cardboard and then uh, put some um, turf on top of it, would, would they still come through the cardboard? Uh, look, it's a very persistent plant and the chances are if you tried to do that over your lawn to yeah. kill out the oxalis, and this is the sort of issue you've got, you could sort of, you can smother your beds with cardboard. Yeah. If you tried to do that with the lawn and then put lawn on top of it again, you're going to end up with this layer thing and I don't think the lawn's going to actually catch uh, and hold uh, and in the summer it's just going to dry up and die. Mm. And also... When the cardboard does rot down, you'll probably find slowly it'll come back still. I mean, I've got it really badly at my place, Maria, and I've just given up. Yeah, and you've got to remember the oxalis is there during the winter months mainly. You won't see it at all during the summer. So if it's in your your veggie patch, well, then you grow summer-growing vegetables because they're not going to compete with the oxalis. Um, And the oxalis is growing when most of your deciduous plants are dormant, so it's not going to have any impact on your plants. And, in fact... The only things oxalis are likely to have any impact on are really low-growing, matty things that, um, uh, that it might grow through and smother. Uh, like otherwise, it's not going to harm anything in the garden. Yeah, so mm. it's a, really the lawn's probably... Yeah, the, the lawn is probably be. more a threat than actually the garden from oxalis. But the lawn is just about dead in the summer because mm. of all the oxalis. Yeah. There's hardly any grass left. Yeah, yeah, and so I would be trying to get, and this sounds like probably uh, using something rather nasty to kill something else, I'd be using a running lawn like a kaikuya or a buffalo lawn, yeah. uh, which is more summer growing anyway and tends to be semi-dormant in the winter. And it's likely to try, it's likely to survive the oxalis better than uh, a, a normal fescue mm. type lawn um, uh, but having said that of course all those running grasses tend not to stay on the lawn as well so you've also got the problem of making sure that you keep the edges of your lawn in so that you don't end up with kaikuyu or buffalo all through the garden mm. beds yeah, see problem. I've got so both it's, it's <laughs> a war I, I really can't win no, no, I, no, I really can't. don't think you can win and, and at the end of the day sometimes you're better to say alright well there's nothing I can do about this yeah. isn't it pretty yeah. 
Yeah, it looks pretty. You know, because it's, you know, really at the end of the day, you don't want to end up causing yourself all sorts of mental anguish over something you can't actually fix. Um, Plant uh, stuff that will contrast well with... Yes, things that look pretty with the yellow of the oxalis (laughs) when it's in flower. Um, And I have to say, when I lived in London, I would have been thrilled if I had oxalis, you know, which is ridiculous. I Mm. hate it now. Mm. I'm with Maria on this. This is oxalis pescaprey, by the way. Oh, yes, not all oxalis. (laughs) But, you know, I would have loved it because it it doesn't survive Mm. in England. No, Mm. and that's why it ended up here as a garden plant, even the weedy ones, because they were so pretty and they were sort of cherishable things in the British climate. Uh, people just didn't think it through when they imported some of these things to Australia. Mm. So they just bought in Oxalis ad hoc uh, instead of selecting all the good ones and leaving the rubbishy ones behind that are going to go weedy because mm. they didn't know which were going to go weedy. Mm. And so we did end up with several seriously weedy Oxalis, but certainly Oxalis pescapri, the yellow one, is by far and away the most vicious and, mm. and vigorous. And I think it's... Um, um, it's got multiple chromosomes too. It's a, it's a uh, what do they call them? Um, now I'm having an age, an age mental block. Um, there is a term for it, and they're extra vigorous because the the wild forms of pescaprey in um, it's a tetraploid. That's what okay, I was looking yep. for. Uh, the wild forms of pescaprey in in Africa tend to be not tetraploid, uh, and so therefore nowhere near as vigorous and quite uh, yeah more restrained little, and yeah, smaller yeah, yeah, flowered yeah. and actually not half as pretty. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so it's it's a really vigorous and vicious plant. And um, yes, if I had a garden full of it, I'd have to try and learn to live with it because I'm not going to send myself absolutely batty trying to control it. And what makes it worse than all the others is the fact that not only does it produce thousands and thousands of little baubles under the ground that seem to be able to survive pretty much anything you throw Mm. at it, but they're also producing seed too, which Mm. then it can spread a lot quicker. And that's why it's such... So a lot of the other slightly weedy oxaluses might only be able to run a little bit. So you think of them as weedy, but when you think of it, they might only spread left undisturbed. You know, they might only form a clump, you know, a metre or so across in 15 or 20 years or something. Mm. It's only when you rip the soil up and yeah, spread the bulbs around, around everywhere that they become a problem. But pesca prey has got that seed, uh, the fact that it can uh, sprout up pretty much anywhere from seed, and that's why it's such a terrible weed. Mm. Uh, yeah. yeah, so sorry we can't give you the golden bullet. <laughs> Because there really isn't well, one. Just, yes. <laughs> You're just going to have to live with it, Maria. You have to live with it. Oh, yes, unfortunately. Yellow's so a lovely, cheery yeah. colour. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. Bye, Maria. Oh, we've had a query from the outside line. Um, a caller from Preston, George, has a grevillea, two years old. It has long purple plumes and has been planted in a shady area. It is not growing well and has yellow stems. What can he do to save it? No, shouldn't be get in a shady shade. area. Yeah. yeah, get rid of the shade. That might mean pulling the house down. Uh, I don't know what the sh- is causing the shade, but the vast majority of grevilleas, and there's always exceptions, but the vast majority of grevilleas do far better if they're out in full sun. And the issue that George has now got is, of course, that they're also not plants that shift well. Mm. So there's very little likelihood of you being able to dig it up and move it. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's certainly very unlikely. Um, so sometimes with these things, you're better to cut your losses, buy another one, get it growing in the appropriate spot, which would be out in a full sun aspect, um, and then eventually take the other one out. Mm. Um, because, yeah, I mean, you can try, but all the effort you put it, into trying to get a decent ball of root out, and your and chance it's, it's not going to like risk. it. Yeah. 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 Mm. And, of course, if it's ill now... 
you're probably just going to push it over the brink if you try and shift it. So, mm. and and if he wants exactly the same variety in a different spot, if it's f- when it's flowering, get some good photos of the flowers and leaves and other identifying features so you can actually track down. Yeah, we don't know the name of it. Yeah, yeah, it's a good idea. If you take um, those to somewhere like Karanga Native Nursery, they'll probably be able to say, oh, that's Scrivilli or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and you can just buy another one. And, you know, for probably less than 20 bucks, you, mm. you know, just get another one. Now, he also has a small spindly wattle, uh, which is new. It's in a pot. Uh, he wonders if he can plant it now. Yeah, yeah. I would. Oh, definitely. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Now's a good time. The ground's damp. We've gone past the equinox, so in theory it won't be too long before the warm weather sets in, uh, and the uh, wattle should be off and running, but again, make sure it's out in the sun. There's, I mean, there are natives that are good in shade, like some of the corriers and those sorts of things, but the vast majority of our wattles, grevilleas, bottle brushes, melaleucas, you know, a lot of those sort of showy native shrubs are mainly sun-loving. Exactly. So they need to be out in the sun. Yep. There we go. Okay, that number, if you'd like to join us, we're running through until 9.15, our usual time slot. The number is 94190155 to speak to Stephen, Virginia and Greg. Or if you'd like to have a chat to Carol on the outside line, 94198377. Greg, what else have you brought in? Well, a I brought in... with a little bowl. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I was hoping there was a few more. Oh, there's one coming up there. There's another yeah, one coming up. Okay. So I bought in a colchicum, but instead of the autumn flowering ones that most people are probably more familiar with, this is one of the... Oh, it's supposed to be a spring flowering one, but because it's a bit warmer in Australia, it's winter, spring, um, which is uh, colchicum kesselringii. Um and it's un- very cute. It's it's a gorgeous little thing. Um, so instead of the autumn colchicums that send their flowers up without the foliage in autumn, and then the leaves come up later in winter, this one flowers as the leaves come up. Um, so it's not naked; it's dressed. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the flower, instead of being that sort of um, I don't know, mauvey purple that just yeah, about every culture can be. This is one of the few species that actually has a quite interesting colour. It's, it's white with a, a very dark sort of reddish, dark pink um, or burgundy stripe up the outer petals. Mm. And, and it's a and striking little flower. Yeah, mm. so, so it's, a, it's, a, it's a much smaller flower. It um, is smaller, but it is very cute. But it's more, it more looks like one of the crocuses with the, with the outer, coloured outer petals on it. So, um, uh, and usually the snails love the spring flowering colchicum. So if you've got them out in the ground somewhere with yeah, the I think snails, I've lost they, mine. <laughs> they just get, they get munched off constantly. And, uh, colchicum lutea, which is a yellow one, um, and it's quite closely related to this one, I think, is the same if you've got it. Mm. And there's snails around, you'll probably lose it. Um, but these ones, I believe, I, I grew from seed, um, mm. and they, so they took quite a yeah. That's from uh, Jimmy, Jim Archibald seed stock that I got at some point. Um, and yeah, they're, they're really hard to get. I don't know that they're really I sold. In I don't know that anybody's growing it. I think um, um, you might get it from Glenbrook bulbs in Tasmania. Yeah, uh, and Marcus, Ma- Marcus used Harvey used to have it when yeah. he was still with us. Unfortunately, he's yeah. now passed away. Um, uh, I, I think, think he, his were crossed with Lutea a little bit because these were sort of an apricoty colour, oh, often not, not white with the mm. with the burgundy on mm. them. Mm. Um, a bit of a mongrel, really. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I've got 
quite a few colchicums at home that I've grown from seed, and they take ages to flower from seed too. This, I think it was about six or eight years before Oh, something it to do when you turn 80. Yes, yeah. <laughs> um, but again, I've got about, yeah, I had about 40 different species of colchicum, and they, uh, if they didn't have tags in the pots, I wouldn't know what they were. They look the same. Yeah, yeah a lot of them do, but Kesselringi eye is definitely it's a distinct-looking plant. It's a distinct-looking plant. If, so, it, if it is extremely hard to come by, mm-hmm. if somebody wants one, can they get one from you? No, um, no, that's you don't it. Share it. That's <laughs> no. That, that's that's all. That's, that's all I've got. So, um, right, so. Uh, I, I've shared the odd bulb with with people to make sure that it's out there. Yeah. Because I think that's probably at this stage that's the most important thing you can do is actually get a make number sure of people growing yes. it. So if yep. I lose my pot, it's still around. This, yes, is, you, this is the plant trust theory. Yes. yes, that's right. If you want to keep it, you give it away. Yes. Um, so, but yes, you haven't got enough to be overly generous no, with. No. So somebody would have to offer you something exceedingly uh, valuable from your perspective. Something like that, yeah. Or, or, and the other, the other thing is, uh, like how I got this in the f- first place, is to get two to flower at the same time, because these will be different clones, because mm. I grew them from seed. Um, is to get two to flower at the same time and get seed because it does actually grow quite well from seed. Mm. Um, as long as you're patient and young enough. That's right. So, <laughs> so, but that's the fastest way to get these things up to up mm. to sort of speed. In, in and numbers. You, if you can get a batch of seed, even if it's not commercial quantities, you at least get a number of bulbs. That's it. Whereas yep. if you buy a bulb. Not only is it going to take time to multiply by the bulb, but you end up with the one clone, so your chances of getting seed are far slimmer. Yeah. And, yes, yeah, so seed is the mm. way to go if you can get it. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Okay. All right, we've got some calls. We have got some calls. Next up, we're going to Robin out in Selby. Good morning, Robin. Good morning. Um, my query is about Cosonia. So I grew one in a pot. It's mm-hmm. now about probably 10 feet tall. Yeah. And I will want to put it in the ground, and I was wondering if it would go up in the high country or the frost's going to kill it. Depends on which Cassonia. Yeah, I knew you'd say that. Yeah. It's uh, the one that's um, in the courtyard at Melbourne University, which, as undergraduates, we used to call it the penis tree. Is that... <laughs> oh, I don't know. The, the, the banal humour of young people, yes. Um, all right. Um, look... Even the hardiest of Cassonias might be pushing it if you take it up to the high country, I mm-hmm. have to say. I wouldn't. Yeah, um, I've got one at my place, and since I've put it in the ground, it has grown half an inch, and that was three years ago. Mm. And I think it's because of the cold. It really struggles to get yeah. through the now, I've got one doing well in my garden in Macedon. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm. In fact, I thought it was going to be exceedingly slow, so I planted it under the power line. Yeah. <laughs> And I was looking at it the other day thinking it's only got about six feet to go to get to the power line. And then, um, and then and they'll then, massacre it. Yeah, and then the, the power people will come in and, and deal with it. So I've decided I'm going to probably bite the bullet late spring and cut it down and start it off from low again. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. Uh, and so it has grown quite well in my garden at Macedon. I think the one I've got is Paniculata, which I think is the hardiest of the Cassonias. Um, but if I have them in pots up at the nursery, they do tend to get frosted and blighted in the winter and look really scruffy, and it takes me nearly till the next frosts to get them looking good again to sell. So I stopped stocking them for that reason because I just couldn't keep them looking nice um, because of the cold weather. They yeah. are huge in the botanic gardens where they are. Mm. Um, they're a lovely tree. Yes, they are. Mm. Yeah, they're really nice. And when you say huge, they yes, they get big, but they're not an oak tree. So no, but there, there's one where uh, there's a bit of the garden that I work in once a month, and there's one there, and it is mm. large. Yeah, yeah. So, but yeah. it's probably been there a very long time. Well, exactly. And most of us will be dead before we have to worry about that. Mm. So yeah, I I hesitate to take it up there. I have to say. Why can't you plant it in Selby? 
Um, there's not a lot of room left. Ah. Well, you could walk around the garden and see what doesn't need to be there. <laughs> <laughs> there is that. And the other thing, too, with it is because it'll get high, Robin, it, you can, you know, you can plant underneath it. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah you could sort of fit like? it into a gap between some shrubs and just let it have the sky above. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm a bit desperate for sunlight here, I have to say. <laughs> yeah. the well, we all get already. like that after but a while. Are its roots invasive? Is it kind of uh, look, its roots aren't going to be invasive to the extent that they're going to pull up foundations or, or completely strangle anything you want to grow near them. And because they're very drought tolerant, they're not questing a lot of water. So I think they'd be something you could grow other things under reasonably well. Yeah. But then the other thing too, Dallin, is why not just try it in the high country, wherever that is? Well, there is that. I mean, it didn't cost much. And I grew it from a you know thing that was about I don't know. Mm. And that's what you want. So try it. You know. But just think about it. Make sure you put it somewhere where um, maybe where it's high, so Mm. the frost will run down the hill. With a bit of a high canopy above Above it as well to sort of break up the frost a bit. So if there's a couple of big trees in the property, you might sort of nestle it in underneath a couple of gum trees. Look at the northern side of a of a evergreen. Yeah, so it gets the sun a little bit, but not is protected from the canopy yeah. of the so, other So yeah, so finding the right microclimate might be all you need to do because they're not yeah, that's, that's seriously true. frost tender, yeah. but you don't want it to look scruffy all the time. No, no, that's it. I mean, if I'm going to plant, I want it to look like a decent tree. And last year, I lost plants for the first time in 15 years. I lost plants to frost, and the Cassonia went through that. And it survived. It survived quite happily. Yeah, it yeah. just won't grow. Oh, look, I think I'll have a bash and see. Yeah, good luck. Mm. Yeah. yeah let us know how you get on. <laughs> okay, this time next year, give us a ring. Next year, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you. Okay, bye. Bye. Uh, okay, back to the oxalis. No. Stephen from Bullane wants to know, is it edible? Um... Strictly speaking, no, uh, but, but there's a lot We of, did as children. Yeah, <laughs> and, and in fact, it's now being used in upmarket restaurants in salads, uh, the leaves and the flowers, because they have oxalic acid in them, and if you, if you chew on the oxalis, it has a very strong, bitey, almost acidic flavour, which is the oxalic acid in it. In small quantities, in a mixed salad, it's perfectly fine. And so I've sold a lot of oxalis plants, some of my ornamental ones, particularly the pretty leafed ones, mm. uh, to people who are growing them for mixed salad. So in a sense, yes, they are. And you'll also find that if you are game to dig oxalis out of the ground... Um, Many species produce a white carrot-like root yes. that goes Tasty. below the bulb, and they're good. I, again, remember when I was a teenager working in your nursery, and the, mm. I think it was bowie eye that has... Yes, the bowie big, eye gets big yeah. roots, it's, and they're, they're like eating celery really, and, and without it was always, string. It was always a good find at Stephen's Nursery to find a big carrot, the, the yeah. bowie eye root growing out of the bottom because I could snap it off and wash it under the tap and have yeah, it and just eat it. So <laughs> when you say oxalis be, and, the, and the roots don't have oxalic acid in them so they're perfectly fine you could eat them in quantity and it wouldn't do you any harm and of course the New Zealand yam mm. Um, is is Oxalis tuberosa. So it's another Oxalis species, and it's not New Zealand, by the way. It comes from South America, but anyhow, Kiwis tend to take credit for everything. They do. Um, (laughs) And um, I've just offended half our audience. (laughs) Um, And um, so, you know, again, they don't produce the oxalic acid in the tuber. Well, I just put a whole lot of those tubers in the bin yesterday. Mm. Yeah, you either like them or you don't. I've never tried them. Haven't you? Well, how do you know you don't like them? (laughs) I didn't. I don't like them in my garden. Yeah. They're yellow. I yeah. mean, they're not yellow tubers. They're that that particular oxalis, and I 
happened to pull them out because I was doing something else in the garden. I just put them straight in the bin. Yeah, yeah well, the white roots I will eat when mm. I find them. So yeah. I'll try one this weekend. Yeah, yeah have a go. Wash it first because uh, it'll be covered in dirt. Don't pull it back out of the bin. No, no, I'm not going to. So in a sense, yes, oxalis are edible. You certainly could throw the odd leaf and flower into a mixed salad, but don't eat oxalis foliage and flowers in quantity because they have oxalic acid and it's not good for you. Uh, but, you know, I think I mentioned whiskey earlier. It's not good for you either in quantity. It's all about so, dosage, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. It's about dosage. So, yes, you well, sort of can eat them. There's a lot of plants with oxalic acid in it. Yeah. I mean, mm. Warrigal Greens has oxalic acid yeah. in it, and, and that's why it really should be cooked, mm. not eaten it to, you know, in any great quantities um, yeah, raw. It's raw. Mm. Yeah, yeah, so there you go. So, yes, it sort of is. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> sort of. You'd have to do it and eat an awful lot. Oh, you would. You'd have to eat a heap of it. I think if you've got uh, arthritis, it can be really bad, though, apparently, if in even in smaller doses. So, mm. yeah, if you've got... Um, different types of arthritis, it's not good mm. at all. Yeah, so don't go to posh restaurants <laughs> anymore. <laughs> uh, okay, well, we'll go to our next oxalic uh, question. We're going to Jill in Mulvernese. Good morning, Jill. Good day, Pam, Stephen, Virginia, um, and, and friend. Greg. 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 <laughs> I've got a lovely patch of uh, burgundy Oxalis and it has lovely bright pink flowers. Yes, Oxalis purpurea and it's it's known under multitude of names. Mm. It could be garnet, it could be nigrescence, uh, who knows. Um, and it's a lovely oxalis. It does spread, so yeah. it will keep moving sideways, but it stays almost dead flat to the ground. And it's the most beautiful foliage and flowers. It's it just is a fantastic ground yes. cover. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a lovely plant. Well, it's, it's migrated out of the bed near the front door into the lawn, but I don't care. It's just a nice little patch of colour. Yeah, it improves the lawn, doesn't yeah, it? I really think it looks lovely in the lawn. Than grass. Yeah. <laughs> and the, the theme of my garden is green, and then it has mostly pink and and some lavender. So, you know, it fits in perfectly yeah. with the thematic. It's a, it's a lovely little oxalis, and although I give it health warnings to everybody because it does move, um, I sell heaps of it. Mm. Uh, it's, a re- it's probably one of the first oxaluses to sell out each year when it comes yeah, into Yeah, I used to sell quite a few of them yeah, too. And, um, and it's lovely. I've got a, a patch of it that's probably about a metre wide now after about three years in the ground at home, mm. and it's starting to come up in the path outside the bed a little bit. But I don't care. It's it's just so pretty, uh, and and it's not going to swamp anything. I mean, even quite small bulbs will come up through that oxalis and still perform without being swamped out. And they're by quite it. shallow rooted too, so they're not going to really. Yeah, um, it doesn't go down deep. And, and they're, can, I, they're, can I ask a question, please? Yeah, sure. I've got I've got a Captain Cook. Um, oh dear, you know the. You're talking about the Callistamon. Callistamon. Yeah. And I haven't pruned it for years, and it's got the nuts. Would it, would it be okay if I prune back, you know, past the nuts, you know, into the, that have still got leaves on? I know you've got to keep some leaves on. Mm, would yeah. that be all right to, to well, do prune that? into the old wood, you mean, Jill? No, well, I'll, there's, there's old wood behind, but it's still got leaves on it behind the nutty yeah, bit. Yeah, that'd be fine, although having said that, you'd probably be better to do it after it flowers, because you might well take all the flowers off. For oh, this okay. coming year. Yeah, so, all right. But, you know, it's very prunable. And you're right, you can go back below, you know, previous year's growth. As long as there is some foliage still on the, the older stems, then yeah. it will shoot from those those points. And, in fact, that one probably would shoot from even further back, but I wouldn't take that risk. Okay. And I just have to tell people that the vinca 
that I've been pulling out is I've really got it in control in the areas where men pulled millions out and just about um, had thought she had a stroke in her hand. It was so sore. But under the japonica, I keep pulling out the green bits and I think I'm winning. Well done. Persistence often pays off, Jill. Yes, Yes, it's the name of the game in life, isn't it? Of course it is. If you persist with things long enough, uh, there's a good chance you'll win. But you've got to be very persistent with a lot of these weeds, including oxalis, if you want to get out the weedy ones. (laughs) I just cut off the... the, um, Now, it looks so beautiful in my wild garden out the back. What I do is leave it. And then as soon as it starts, looks, I get the scissors and cut it off at ground level so I'm not getting more nuts, more bulbs everywhere. Mm. And uh, I take all the petal, the flowers off mm. and um, put those in a, a bowl or a, with tub with boiling water over them. I don't know whether that does anything for the pollen and kills it or not. I don't know. Oh, well, whatever you're doing, if, it, if, if you're happy to do it and it seems to be working, just keep doing it. It looks pretty all the time, mm. you know, at this time of year when everything else is, is waiting to emerge, you know. Anyway, thanks for listening. Okay, right, we'll then. Bye. Bye. Right, next up we're going to Ray out in Mount Waverley. Good morning, Ray. Uh, good morning, all. Um, I've got a very old oak tree. Um, uh, it's um, a li- out in uh, my uh, nature strip. I uh, noticed last year, uh, through the summer, the possums were just eating all the new growth and actually depleting uh, so much shade. I was getting that hot afternoon sun coming through. And I've heard ideas of actually tying dog hair to the branches to actually distract the, the, the stop the um, possums getting up in the tree and eating these uh, new the new growth all the time. Just wondered if you had any ideas or well, I know somebody who does idea. it. Eddie up at um, the Dandenongs uh, ties pieces of old stocking with dog hair in it after he grooms his dog in a tree that is particularly prone to possum attack, and he reckons it works. Ray, oh, how good. do they get into the tree? Well, they can climb up the tree from the well, nature see that, strip. Well, what you could do there is put a collar, big collar, plastic collar around it, and mm. then they can't climb up it. Uh, I've got um, a blackwood tree in my garden. They will jump across to yes, it. No, yeah, if, there's, if, there's, if there's a road access up in the air, yeah. then you're a bit oh. stonkered uh, in that way. And the power lines go across the top of it as well. Oh, well, so, then, yeah. Then and they use that as a highway. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But, All right. So, yeah, look, you could try the... I mean, the issue I've got is, is whether the dog hair in bags is going to work from a lowish level in the tree to protect the top of the tree as well without you having to clamber up into this old oak tree and get them way up in the top because we don't want to hear that you've killed yourself trying to stop the possums getting up into the tree. I could tap some nice big hooks or something and uh, put it in stockings and uh, not have to go up there. I think I could make something like that. But look, uh, I only know of one person who's been doing it and they swear by it. Um, um, (laughs) And um, I think... You've got nothing to lose. I mean, give it a go. No. Uh, and, and, and maybe uh, put some chili in the hair as well, because that's yeah, the other one I've idea. been told. That well, chili... What about camphor? Some of the what are called that? Oh, yes, yes, the camphor yeah, balls. camphor. Yeah, yeah, the the um, that... mothball things. Yeah. 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 Look, anything that's got a nasty smell about it, uh, there's always a good chance it might have some impact. The only but... trouble is we don't know what the possum will consider nasty. I mean, I think yeah. eating 
the piss of a lemon would be a revolting thing to do and they eat all the piss on my lemons and yeah. leave all the lovely fruit behind. Yeah. And yeah. You, you don't want to, if, if, if the dog hair has been found to work, you don't want to mask then the smell of the dog hair by putting camphor no. in the same bag. Yeah. And the other issue, of course, is that some old elderly possums might not have a sense of smell. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and you need to get them down or else the tree just yeah. gets full of old stockings full of dog hair over time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. Ornamentally, it may not look so good. <laughs> Yeah, but it was terrible because uh, it was only like half shade, and you know how dense the shade is on an oak tree. Yes, it's just yes. beautiful. Yes, and, it, and it's sad to see an old tree like that being uh, mutilated by the possums because it, uh, you know, it takes a long time to get a tree that size, and uh, yeah, you know, yeah. it's it is sad to see those sorts of things happen. It's sixty years old, mm-hmm. or and um, you know, it's got about a sixty centimetre trunk. But it's hardly lifted any of the concrete around it, so the roots must really get, you know, it hasn't lifted the road. No, or they go like down, that. down, they down. Go Oaks down, are, yeah. are quite a good tree from the perspective of, uh, of roots in gardens and things, so I would encourage people to use more oaks, actually. Oh, uh, they're a fabulous tree. Yeah. Just the other thing about um, years ago, it was known, a friend of mine said, look, you can use sulphate of iron on your uh, oxalis on your lawns just to wet wet the oxalis and just sprinkle on it. I just don't know if it's used uh, that much anymore, but uh, I mm. found it effective years ago. Sulfate of iron. Right, yeah. I'm trying it. Yeah, well, I, ha- I certainly haven't heard that one. It, so. it will, it'll burn it off, it'll go black, mm. and then you can just leave it. It won't, you can actually, even the grass will go a little bit dark, but it won't affect the lawn, but it'll affect the oxalis. All right, well, it's worth having and it a crack. It kicks it back. It knocks it back for a while. That's yeah. sort of... Yeah, so know. it's not likely... Well, one application is not likely to have any lasting one impact on anything. One application, it could knock it back for uh, three to six months yeah. or something, but it, oxalis will always keep coming back. We know that. It's, yeah. it, it's when you get a, a, a lot of um, uh, soaking rain, uh, a week later, all the oxalis wants to come up. That's generally its pattern. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, thanks for that little bit of info. Okay. No worries. Okay. Cheers. Bye. And uh, next up, we're going to go to Jill in East Brighton. Good morning, Jill. Hello. Another Jill, another uh, Oxalis Oxalis (laughs) conversation, if you can stand it. (laughs) Yes, I actually deliberately introduced an invasive Oxalis into my garden because it was the first flower I ever remember noticing when I was about three. I remember my mother walking me down uh, across a nature strip in Dramana. And this one is a um, very flat sort of growing one, and it's got... um, um, mid-pink uh, flower that kind of opens up in a kind of furled, furled way so that it's sort of like a um, spiral yeah. uh, with a gold centre. And uh, Mum told me, oh, yes, uh, and I you know, was quite fascinated that these were the ballet skirts of fairies, you know, very twee. But <laughs> at, at three, I thought that I've was... just found a new way to sell oxalis. <laughs> <laughs> as long as your, your customers are three years old. Yeah, yeah well, yeah, I, I need to encourage the young ones. Yes, you do. Yeah. Yes, you do. Anyway, um, uh, they those oxalis are still flowering in that nature strip of Dramana, um, 67 years later, I'm now 70, <laughs> and uh, they, the house was being demolished, a lovely old house, and I thought, Jesus, their bulldozers will be in here. And I really thought, they're very flat, they only come up in winter, so I, um, I went and dug it, sort of lumps out of this, this um, 
weedy kind of, you know, nature strip. And I've put them in my garden and they're spreading around quite nicely and I've been there for about, oh, 10 years now, yeah. so, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just wondered if you have, from a descript- that description, you'd have any idea what... Um, variety they might be, Stephen. Look, without seeing it, I'm, I'd be taking a bit of a punt, but I, it sounds like it is either one of the Oxalis purpurea forms, or yeah. another one that I do see occasionally in things like nature strips and lawns is Oxalis brasiliensis, which has quite a dark magentary pink flower. Um, yes. It stays very flat to the ground, has classical clover-shaped leaves, yes. um, and it's a fairly deepish green and slightly glossy. Yes. Hey, that sounds like it. Yeah, well, it could be Brasiliensis, which is a bit of a... Well, it's a thug in the sense that if you don't want it, it's a real pain in the neck because it, yes, it spreads yeah. everywhere. But if you don't dislike it, it doesn't do any harm to other plants around it. Uh, so it is one of those that I actually was growing for years and then stopped growing it thinking it was a bit too weedy even for me. Uh, and then I thought, you know what, it looks fantastic in a pot and um, and yep. it doesn't swamp anything. So, That's exactly you know, right. Yeah, yes. So, yes. you know, maybe it's not as bad as I'd first thought. So I actually reintroduced it into my collection. Uh, yes. I haven't put any of it in the ground yet, um, although I've got most of my other oxaluses growing in the ground at home. Uh, but it will probably go into the garden at some point in time because I think it is rather lovely. Uh, look, it is, and I don't know where... Um, perhaps it's, it's spreading sort of slowly in my garden yeah. because uh, in East Brighton I'm on the sand belt and uh, it's on the uh, path that... Sorry, on the bed that faces the footpath. It gets absolutely blasted by um, uh, north and west sun. Yeah. So it stays nicely underground and then it pops out well, or, you know, my salvias and things have all been cut down and the soil is bare and it's this carpet of lovely clover leaves and these beautiful little furled pink flowers. And and it probably gives all your gardening friends a heart attack when they see it. (laughs) Yes, that's right. Yes, that's another... Added advantage. Yeah, that's right, exactly. Yes. You can have all these interesting discussions. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> uh, anyway, well, anyhow, yeah. if you want to be absolutely dead certain, if you can get a photograph of it in flower um, and can send it to me or something, I'm very happy to make a final um, ID on Judgment. it. Judgment. But oh, it does sound great, yeah. a bit like Brasiliensis. So the main yep. difference between Brasiliensis and Purpurea to look at would to probably at, be uh, the leaf. Glossy. The leaf is glossy uh, or glossy-ish. Yep. Uh, the plant is even flatter to the ground okay. than your average purpurea, and the, and the leaves are smaller, but you've got to have both of them together to know that. Mm. Um, and the flowers are darker than any of the purpurea forms, so it's quite a deep carmony pink. Um, Has it got the big flowers like the purpurea? It's not quite as big... Uh, as most of the purpurea yep. forms, the flowers and the, are smaller. And the purpureas have got quite hairy leaves too, yeah. and they, especially and around the edges. The other of thing the I leaves. think for memory, and oh, I'm okay. going to have, to have a look at yeah, my. No, these are not hairy, I don't yeah, think. Yeah, the, I think I'm going to have to look at my Brasiliensis again at some stage. But purpurea has individual flowers that come up straight from the bulb. I've got a feeling Brasiliensis has a, an umbel of several flowers on a stem. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. oh, if that's the case, then it's purpurea because these come straight up from the bulb. Yeah, if they come straight up from the bulb, it's likely to be a purpurea. Yep. There yep. we go. We anyway, might have pinned it down. I'm very, I'm very happy with it. Good. <laughs> Good on you, Jill. Yes, whereas I go around, you know, loathing the yellow and the yes, other yes. things. Yes, yeah, White. Yeah, there's no, no reason why we shouldn't have a selective like or dislike when it comes to a genus of plants as big as Oxalis. Yep, yep. <laughs> Thanks very much. That's a pleasure. Okay. Bye. I have had a question from Priscilla in East Melbourne. When she should, should she prune her salvia waverly? 
Unless I've been pruning my salvias, I, and in East Melbourne you're as safe as houses, and I would prune them now. I've got I've put on the website the salvias in my garden that are in flower at the moment, and I've got Kawinskii and Timboon, these these plants that are tall as me or taller with great big pink flowers, and they're absolutely wonderful. Now clearly I'm not going to prune them. Sagittatus in flower. I'll still prune it because it'll just go on flowering and flowering and flowering. Corrugatus in flower. It will go on flowering and flowering and flowering. And I, I don't know how many salvias I've got, but there's more than 50 there. And I'm pruning because I've got no choice. You can prune them any time of year, but clearly if you prune them now, you'll see, I would imagine with your Waverley, if you look at the bottom, you'll have new growth coming at the base. And if that's the case, prune to the new growth. What I do with myself is I never prune into something where I can see nothing. I, I, I prune down as far as I can go and where I see some nice gro- new growth about to come. And, you know, they flower for so long that really you can prune them any time of year, but pruning them now is an excellent time. There you go. Okay. Now I've got a couple as well. Sue from Heathmont has a silk tassel tree. It's six to seven feet tall, and it is wide. Should she prune it? If she's got, if there's no problems with it being that size, then leave, leave it. Leave it. Yeah. Mm. Uh, I mean, Garia, the silk tassel tree, can grow into quite a large mm. shrub, small tree. There's some I've big seen, ones up the mountain. Yeah, there? there's some big ones in some <laughs> of our gardens up around Mount Macedon, I have to say. Um, and there's no reason to prune it unless you're trying to control it. So if it's getting bigger than you want, when it finishes flowering, prune it back then. And you can prune them really hard. You can go into old wood with garriers. And they'll they'll reshoot really well, oh, don't they? I yeah. saw garriers shoot after the fires that had been burnt to the ground. Mm. So they were like little blackened pencil leads sticking up out of the ground. Yep. And they shot from the roots. Yep. So You just miss the tassels. Yeah, for, for several years. years, actually, if you prune that hard. <laughs> yep. um, but, um, yeah, so you can prune them quite hard, and I do it straight after flowering so that they've got a chance to send out new growth so that there's a chance to get flowers again the following year. But really heavy pruning will stop them flowering for at least a year. Um, uh, and you only need to do it if it's getting bigger than you need. I mean, if the plant is, is filling the space it's in and you, and you don't care if it gets even bigger, just leave it. So it's as simple as that, because um, they don't need to be pruned. Yep. Okay, uh, Kerry in Port Melbourne uh, wants to know about growing Monstera. Uh, can, if she puts cuttings in water, will that work? And she's also heard that you could grow one, uh, grow some cuttings in a jar with pebbles and water and leave them there permanently. I don't know about permanently, mm. um, but certainly you can strike monstera in water, uh, so it's very possible. Um, of course, they often produce um, adventitious roots up the stems. That's right. And so if you cut just below one of those roots, you can, and then cut above the leaf so that you've got a, a single node with a root, uh, and then I'd cut the leaf back, um, you could pop that immediately. It doesn't need to go into water. It's actually what I would technically call an Irishman's cutting. Um, and um, so you can do them that way. And you'll often see uh, the very rare and desirable variegated leafed ones being offered on eBay for ridiculous prices for a rooted cutting. Um, uh, they seem to be the thing. Mm. Um, so, um, yes, but certainly you could strike them in a glass of water and, and you could put pebbles in to hold everything up. Uh, but the pebbles won't do anything other no. than hold everything up. And I wouldn't leave them permanently in water. Stay there. And also Sue has rung in and left a message for Ray 
saying that Bunnings have actually been selling something, uh, an electronic thing for getting rid of possums that beep or whatever. Oh, okay. So that maybe that's worth his worth. I think I've trying. seen those in a Except few I can't gardens, quite yeah. see how you'd manage to get it up into a tree it, so that's on the nature strip. strip. Yeah. They've got sensors on them, if it's the same one I'm thinking of, um, and they emit a strobe light as well as a really high-pitched sound. Um, like um, almost out of our hearing range. Neighbors. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's almost. It's actually, if you're standing right in front of them, you can hear it. Yeah. But it's not a loud sound. It's high in decibels. It's just really high frequency, so it's right on the edge of our hearing. Mm. Um, so you probably won't annoy the neighbors too much. Mm. I don't think. Strobe light might. The be strobe light is the problem. Yeah, <laughs> yes, yeah. that would be. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I don't think. Uh, <laughs> you know, you'd have to get a mirror ball and some uh, <laughs> some other lighting to to counteract it. I guess. <laughs> Then you could just dress appropriately and say you've started your own disco. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we've only got a very short time before we have to finish. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stephen, well, do you want me to work through another plant? Yes. All right. Um, this is the willow leaf bay tree, Loris nobilis angustifolia. This is for those who are on a Jenny Craig diet. <laughs> so if you want something for your chicken cacciatore, you can still use the leaves, I might add, for cooking, but they are narrow and willow-like. And... The reason I like it is that it's just texturally so different from the big bay leaf, uh, and its leaves tend to sit upwards. Uh, and you can do all the same things with it. You can end up with a ball on a stick, or you can, you know, train it in any way you want. It's not quite as vigorous growing as the classical bay, so well, that in, would be good in theory. It's because more they are too big. Yeah, yeah, they are too big. Um, and um, I just think it's an interesting variation on the theme basically, and you just don't see it for sale very often. It's very popular in England because it's actually more cold-hardy than the classical bay, so they can grow this out in the open in England, whereas the classical bay actually gets bitten by the cold uh, in most parts of England, unless you're down in Cornwall or somewhere like that. Uh, So this one's more cold-hardy, but I'd say in Australia there's not many places where the cold-hardiness of a bay tree would be in question. My bay tree has never been hit. No, and in Australia you won't. We just don't get cold enough, but certainly in parts of Europe and England... uh, uh, they go for this narrow leaf form for that reason. So that's the narrow leaf bay. Um, You've got time for the other one. All right. One of the tiniest cyclamen. <laughs> uh, this is cyclamen, fortunately now called alpinum, because uh, it used to be cyclamen trochopteranthemum. Troc- <laughs> uh, and they got rid of that name, fortunately. It meant with helicopter propellers, which was actually quite appropriate, because it's very much like cyclamen coom, the other one of the main winter flowering ones, except its foliage is slightly serrated and the petals sit more outward instead of curling back up like most It does look like a little fan. Like a it does look yeah, like yeah. a little fan. Yeah. And it's the cutest little thing. Uh, so Cyclamen alpinum, as it's now known, and it's one of the lovely little winter flowering ones. I don't find it particularly difficult. It seems to be pretty well as easy as most. doesn't seem to self-seed with the same gay abandon that Cyclamen coom can. Mm. Uh, but certainly a nice, interesting little theme. And I just brought along a hue and pine for the fun of it. Um, people sort of have got so carried away with uh, Woolamai Pines and what have you because of all of the story behind it and all that yep. sort of thing. And they forget that we do have some other seriously interesting native conifers. Um, and the Huon Pine is such an iconic Tasmanian conifer. Uh, it's incredibly slow growing. The plant I bought along is probably about 20 centimetres tall and about four or five years old. Um, so they're not the cheapest thing to buy. But you never have to worry about it being a forest giant. Uh, and it makes a great tub well, not, specimen. Not in the next 10,000 years or yeah, so. Yeah, that's right, exactly. <laughs> uh, and, and it makes a really nice tub specimen. It'll look fabulous in a fernery or in a shady part of the garden uh, with its lovely droopy, hangy sort of branches. You do have to keep it staked up for a while to form a trunk. But, you know, 
what could be a better conversation but, piece? And then? the interesting thing, I was joking about the 10,000 years, but there is one in Tasmania that they were they assume is at least sixteen to 20,000 years old. Wow. So they do yeah. actually, one of the, probably yeah, one so of the longest Yeah, so this could become a family heirloom par excellence. Yeah. And yeah. at least we've become sensible enough not to chop it down to find out. Yes. Because yes. yes. according to David Attenborough, we would have the tallest trees in the world if we hadn't if chopped we hadn't them chopped down them to down. measure them. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it's like a sort of joke in the paper once where this bulldozer was going through putting it in a new estate and the guy said, remember what the name of that tree is, we'll call the street that. <laughs> <laughs> so Elm Grove or whatever. Okay. <laughs> Greg, right. do you want to quickly mention one of your plants? Um, You've got one minute. Well, I've got uh, a little daffodil. It's nearly springtime. I'm not big on daffodils, but there's a couple. I've got uh, uh, Narcissus cyclamineus, which is nice. This is one's Asturiensis, I think, which yeah. is... Um, it's a tiniest and, little trumpet. And, yeah, it's, it's about three inches tall, and the yep. flower itself's about half an inch long. Wow. And, but it looks like a... It looks like a King Alfred, but it's yeah. like yeah, 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 yeah. And, um, it, and it won't fall over in the wind. No, it definitely won't. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yep. Cutest little thing. I love some of these little miniature narcissus. They are, yeah. yeah. So I, I, that's my love of daffodils is for the little tiny, interesting ones. And and this is uh, this was a nice, cute one when it first flowered because it was actually only half that height when it when I first flowered <laughs> wow. from seed. Okay. Um, and, and it is tiny. And it's tiny as it is. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Okay, we have run out of time. Uh, Big thank you to the team. Great to see you back in the studio, Greg. Always interesting to have you on board. And a big thank you also to uh, Carol and Louise who've been handling all the phones for us this morning. We will, of course, return next Sunday morning at 7.30. So until then, bye for now. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.